Hey everyone, welcome to the Health Hacks Podcast. My name is Andy Kraft. And I'm Aaron Kraft. And today we're going to cover a new report on the quality of fish oil and what you can look out for when buying supplements, the impact uh, of light on kids' sleep, a better way to implement healthy habits, how goji berries may actually be the key to maintaining eye health, and then uh, an interesting history of an old Pfizer vaccine. Let's get into it. Yeah, so this first story um, came out about, it was a a third-party lab released the listing of fish oil supplements that that they tested. So it's a completely independent study, and they looked at a few, I believe, dozen different fish oil supplements. And what they found were that 10% of them were basically completely rotten um, and on unusable supplements, essentially. Now, 10% does not sound like a, a crazy high number, but it is definitely high enough to be of concern, especially if you're somebody who takes any type of supplement. Um, now, one of the reasons that we see a number like this with supplements is that supplements are not regulated heavily by the FDA. The FDA does not evaluate the effectiveness, the safety, the quality of the ingredients. None of that has to be reviewed by the FDA before these supplements hit the shelves. So people who produce these supplements can essentially put whatever they want on the label, which is a cause for concern because a lot of the labels are inaccurate. Um, Now, what we want to walk through here is kind of give a few pointers, a few details to figure out how um, how accurate the label that you see is actually is. Because um, a lot of what is sold on Amazon specifically, they're the biggest contender of this and things that are sold just like generic versions in GNC or Walmart, a lot of those are uh, quite honestly like misleading in what they are labeling, whether that is ingredient or dosage. So a few things to look out for. The first is to make sure that the supplement is a third party tested. This means an independent organization and an independent lab basically took a sample of a company's uh, supplements and tested it themselves to see how much it aligned with what the label said, with what the ingredients said, the dosage, all of that. They checked to make sure it all um, aligns. So uh, to look for whether it is third party tested, there will be a certificate of analysis on the supplement bottle itself. So you can look at this right on the store shelves to make sure you're getting something higher quality. And the, the I guess, words or uh, labels you want to look for, it will say something like NSF or USP or uh, BSCG or Consumer Lab. These are all different kind of certifications that assure you that a third party has looked at this and has verified the authenticity. So that's kind of the the first line of defense for you to make sure you're getting something higher quality. Um, The second is to look at these third party websites like like Labdoor. They released their whole listing of these fish oil supplements and what they found. Um, And they actually go like kind of line by line for each thing that would be a cause of concern. So I'm going to pull up their actually the their report here to see exactly what they tested for each fish oil supplement. And you can see they give you a score from zero to 100. Or I'll pull up the report here from Labdoor to see what they did for the, the fish oil supplements. And you can see that they rate these things on a, on a scale of zero to 100. So they rate the label accuracy, the product purity, the nutritional value, ingredient safety, and the projected efficacy. 
And you can also go into like really, really detailed analysis of, of what exactly they found in the supplement. But this is a great source to see if what you're taking or the brand you're taking is uh, reputable and reliable and um, their ingredients to see whether or not they're consistent with what they're saying is in it. So that's another thing to do to check out when you're buying a supplement. Third thing is to look at just the ingredient label yourself to make sure that there are no other additives. A lot of times they'll slip in things like sugar and they'll do that commonly with like an elderberry syrup or maybe like a cough syrup, things to make it just taste better. They'll, they'll add in sugar. And that's probably the last thing you want to be taking when you're sick is a, a, you know, a 20 grams of sugar with your cough syrup. So make sure you're checking out the ingredient label as well to make sure there's no sugars or fillers or additives in there. So third label or third party tested going into these websites like Labdoor to actually see the detailed analysis yourself and uh, making sure that there's no added ingredient. Yeah, I recently bought some supplements online in powdered form because I had mentioned last episode that I'm kind of making some supplement gummies and I'm trying to make a sleep gummy. So I bought some like powdered GABA, L-theanine, uh, melatonin, magnesium. And when I bought it, I actually got a link to the third party report from the batch that that was in. Um, so that was kind of cool to see that. Now, the thing is with this website, you could only buy it in Bitcoin. Uh, and the, re- the website was just recently shut down um, <laughs> due to some regulatory concerns. So I, I just don't know what I bought. I could have bought sawdust or fentanyl, but I haven't died yet. So it was it was a it was a fun website while it lasted. What was the name of the website? Do you remember? Uh, Science.bio. Okay. <laughs> and it was like one of these places where they sold this stuff at insane mm, prices. Like, like pennies, pennies on the gram. Yeah. And, you know, they marked on there not for human consumption. And <laughs> maybe maybe that's where they got into some issues. But I know a good one to get stuff like in bulk like that is bulk supplements, actually. The brand mm. bulk supplements. And I do believe their stuff is third-party tested. And you can buy just massive bags on Amazon. And they uh, it's only that things so like i get the creatine from there and it's like literally just creatine uh you know 99.99 percent uh pure and yeah. it is i believe i've looked into the testing of it. i'm thir- i'm pretty sure it's third party tested um and they're pretty reputable so mm-hmm. uh, there are places that you don't have to spend bitcoin to uh to get your supplements right. uh, quality and in bulk yeah yeah that's another good way to do it Uh, All right, next story that we want to look at here is a new study that came out on how light impacts melatonin production in children. Now, we've talked about light a lot uh, on this podcast and how it impacts sleep, and I think it's no surprise that kids now more than ever are getting so much light all throughout the day, especially at night with screen time. My nephew, he's so obsessed with, with the TV that you can stand in front of his face and literally scream his name, and he won't so much as blink. Won't even acknowledge that you're there. Um, just, you know, there's just nothing going on there. And, you know, he's had so much screen time that, like, he's trying to rebrand himself as Kevin. Kevin's not his name. He's nine years old. And then his six-year-old brother is trying to rebrand himself as Nature. Obviously, Nature is not his name. Wow. But this is what the screens are doing to kids. And um, I'm giving them a hard time. They really are smart, wonderful kids raised by wonderful parents when this inevitably gets back to my sister-in-law. Anyway, all that is to say is like kids are getting a lot of light. And this study was interesting because we've done, there's been a lot of research on how light impacts melatonin production in adults. 
but less studied in children. And what this study basically showed is that children are even more sensitive to light at night than adults are. So they took three to five-year-old children and they, I think they monitored them for like seven nights. And, on, and then on the last night, they exposed them to one hour of light before bed. And the amount of light that they exposed them to was uh, different lux. So like different brightnesses ranging from five to 5,000. And what they found is that one hour of light exposure before bed suppressed melatonin by as much as 98.7% compared to baseline, which was like no light. And that was even like for uh, like lower light levels. So even low light intensities, like five to 40 lux, which would be like a dim light, uh, had an average melatonin suppression of 77.5%. This is not even like the the light that you get from a screen. This is just like light bulbs. Um, and then what was really interesting is that after the lights were turned off, melatonin levels remained below 50% baseline for another 50 minutes. For most, for most of the, I think it was like 70% of the participants experienced that. So um, basically even after like an hour, their melatonin levels were still 50% lower than what they should be had they not been exposed to light. And so I think this is really important because like kids, sleep in children is so important for brain health and for behavioral problems. Like sleep is a huge factor for that. And a lot of times, you know, kids are sent to bed with an iPad or I don't know, watch a show before bed or whatever. This is bad for adults. We know this, but like it's even more detrimental to children. So I think that's really important. Uh, We can all learn something from that. Um, but yeah, I think if, if you have kids and, and I know it's difficult when you're like trying to make dinner and, and do chores to uh, keep your kid entertained, but that can significantly impact sleep, which most definitely will impact brain health and development, which can most definitely impact behavior. Something we've mentioned on the podcast before, just like smart lights, like if you can get those installed, they're getting pretty cheap these days, get them installed in all the lights in your house, then you can rather than just having to have your light, like your bedroom light specifically around bed, just all the way on or all the way off, like uh, just a single light next to your bed and having that on right before you go to bed is like, that's really bright. And it, like you said, can take 50 minutes before your melatonin starts kicking back to normal. So something like smart lights, you can just dim it to like, you know, 10% or 5% of its full capacity. And you're going to be much better off. Less, less lux are being outputted when you dim those. Mm-hmm. So um, we've had good luck with those. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Katie, we use those when Katie's breastfeeding in the middle of the night, cause we don't want to like turn all the lights on. So like we'll either use our, our lights turn red so we can put the red light on. That's a little tough. Cause then we try to, we are falling asleep when we're trying to feed him. <laughs> um, but yeah, we can keep them super, super dim or red, which is really helpful in falling mm-hmm. back to sleep quickly. All right. <clears throat> Next, let's talk about, uh, implementing healthy habit. So a lot of times we want people to change the way they're doing something specifically when it comes to like what you're eating or, or working out like the, your initial thing to do is tell something about it. Tell something, tell somebody why, you know, X is better than Y, why, why you should eat meat, why you shouldn't eat meat, why you should run, why you should lift weights. Like people always have their opinion on, on one certain thing and they'll share it and they try to sway people into doing what what they do because they've heard it's the best thing for them. Um, and that's always our initial response is, is to try to inform people one way or another and hoping that that changes 
their actions? Well, it turns out that there have been dozens, actually hundreds of studies on implementing change, like true effective changes in your life. And the, the best way to do that is not necessarily about informing people or giving people knowledge that they didn't know before, but rather it's about what they call here, giving them nudges, or another word for it is, is giving them essentially reminders about actions or changes in their life. So uh, this is called the nudging theory. And there's three different types of nudges that they looked at. And the, and the, the study looked at 200 different articles on this to see how effective nudges were at implementing effective changes. Um, and the three different types are informational nudges, which are essentially physical reminders. So something like a, a label on a food product. Um, the next are structural nudges, which are changes in, in environments. So this would be like making um, healthier food at a cafeteria, the easiest food to access. That's changing the environment. So that's a, a structural nudge. And then the third is assistance-based nudges, which this is essentially the use of accountability. So telling a family member that you want to cut out sugar and them checking in on you at the end of the day. So all three of these are basically little tweaks in your life that kind of remind you of a habit that you want to do. None of them are informing you of something new. It's simply a nudge into the right direction. And this is a meta-analysis on 200 articles around the effectiveness of this. And they found that they were all, all three types of nudges were very effective at creating change. And specifically that second one, the structural nudges were specifically the most effective at creating change, which that one was changes in environment. So at like a cafeteria, they've done studies on, on uh, cafeterias in hospitals specifically. And when they just simply rearrange the foods to make the, the, the healthier foods easier to access, they, people were significantly more likely to pick those healthy foods because it was, it was within reach. They could see it and they didn't have to work extra hard for it. It was right there. And that carries out into our daily life into um with the food in our own house like if you have a box of cereal versus chicken breast you're gonna reach for the like and you're hungry right now you're gonna reach for the box of cereal it's easier for you but when you change your environment to where you only where it's easy to access those healthy foods it's much much easier to make that good decision all that to say next time you are thinking about ranting on facebook about why your friend should go carnivore or should go vegan uh, think again and um, look at these other ways to implement changes. These are a lot more effective and try to introdu introduce them into your own life. Um, they actually in the study also looked at how these apply to specific types of habits. So they looked like how it applied to nutrition, how it applied to fitness. And then I believe the third was like was finances, so spending. And they also found that these nudges were, were most effective between all those different realms. It was most effective with nutrition. So interesting. Um, if you are looking to change up your nutrition, rather than just learning more about it, reading books about it, like that is great, but you could have all the knowledge in the world and you're not going to change. Implementing these reminders into your life, physical reminders, environmental reminders, accountability partners, those are the scientifically proven way to actually make those physical changes. Yeah, this is huge. And this is something that I hear more people talking about, especially when it comes to nutrition. But this is huge in finance, which is my day job. And I, I, I use these with clients, like people that are struggling to 
um, change their money habits. Like everyone has set up a budget before and just can't stick to it. So like one, um, I guess it would be like informational nudge that has seemed to help people is set up a mint account, which is where you can track your spending and don't set, don't even set a budget just like for like this month. Don't even set a budget just twice a week, set up a reminder on your phone to just go look at your spending. That's it. Just go mm-hmm. look at it. Like that alone allows you to kind of see like where your money's going. It's a, it's a quick reminder that you pop up on your phone. You can go, go look at it. That's a small nudge as opposed to this month. I you know spent like crazy. And then next month I'm just all of a sudden I'm going to magically, you know, know where my money's going and spend better. So there's so many things, same with, with like, stuff, you know, investing. There's so much around nutrition, fitness, health, wealth that this applies to. I think we can all use it in almost every aspect of life. All right. Final thing here that uh, we want to go through is an interesting study that came out on goji berries. We've talked about this before about age-related macular degeneration. It's basically a disease that generally is associated with aging and it results in blurred vision. Basically, the the, as the name uh, describes, macu- the macula degenerates, so you can't see sharply anymore, so it gets blurry. There are theories that it's caused by blue light. That is not really confirmed at this point, but it's the third leading cause of blindness worldwide, leading cause of blindness among seniors in developed countries. So this study was looking at how certain nutrients in goji berries can affect age-related macular degeneration. So we talked about this before, I believe, uh, lutein and zeaxanthin are carotenoids that are responsible for giving vegetables their yellow, orange, green pigment. And these antioxidants work together to support the function of the macula, which we need for clear vision. And they also block excess blue light. The study was interesting because goji berries contain a lot of zeaxanthin, again, which is good for macula health. And most people's intake of, and like I said, lutein and zeaxanthin are, are good for eye health, but most people don't have sufficient zeaxanthin. Uh, we get a lot of lutein in things, but you really need both for good eye health. And goji berries are the highest dietary source of zeaxanthin. So what this is good for is it increases, and what they looked at in this study is macular pigment opti- optical density, MPOD. And that's a biomarker for AMD. Basically, the more MPOD you have, the less risk of age-related macular degeneration. So this study took a group of 30 people, middle-late well, mid, age, 40, ages 45 to 65, and for five days a week, for 90 days, they gave they split the group up. They either gave them 28 grams of goji berries or a typical lutein zeaxanthin supplement. Now, that supplement contained six milligrams of lutein and four milligrams of zeaxanthin. Now, the goji berries, they estimated that that contained, uh, the 28 grams of goji berries contained about 29 milligrams of zeaxanthin and basically no lutein. So very high dose of zeaxanthin, which we really don't get in many parts of our diet. And what they found is that after these 90 days, taking five days a week, 90 days, the macular pigment optical density, which we want higher, was significantly increased in the goji berry group and basically no change in the supplement group compared to baseline. So their conclusion was that taking goji berries at, instead of like a supplement, instead of a lutein zeaxanthin supplement, taking goji berries may be a way to prevent or delay age-related macular degeneration. So this, is, this was super interesting. Again, small study, and it's a, kind of the first of its kind, but uh, goji berries are something that you can actually just get at the store. Like I think Na- Navitas, 
has a lot of, oh, it was dried goji berries, I should say, not fresh. So you can get dried goji berries at like a health food store. Like I said, Navitas brand, I think is a common one. Just throw those in your smoothie. If you you worry about that or you have a history of that in your family, couldn't hurt to add that to your smoothie. All right. I think that is a wrap on the headlines of this week. Uh, next, we're going to look at the the fail of the week. And yes, it is COVID. We're sorry, but this is a actually interesting one. So Andy, why don't you, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about this? Before we get into that, I do want to touch on um, one thing that's been going around lately. And, you know, there's been lots of crypto talk. You know, you see this everywhere on social media. For some reason, the I found that the health community has been big into Bitcoin, you know, even though it just lost like 30% of its value. People are obsessed with Bitcoin. But what a lot of people don't know, and I'm in finance, so like I'm kind of on the cutting edge of this. The word on the street is that there's a new currency coming on the market, and that is in the form of electrolytes. Sodium, in, in, in the form of element, actually. So 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium, and that specific quantity, which you can only get at element, unless you, I guess, make it yourself. Um, you could call that mining electrolytes. But basically, this is going to be the new currency. People are going to be buying and selling goods with element. Now, the nice thing about people talk about decentralized currency, this is going to be a real decentralized currency. It's not even on the blockchain. Screw the blockchain. This is where it's at. Don't listen to your 14-year-old nephew who, who thinks he's a, a crypto genius because he owns $50 of Bitcoin. L- look, listen to us. This is first time, you know, really we're making this announcement. Element is going to be the currency of the future. The value of this $39 box could be anything. We don't, we don't even know how much that this $39 box of Element could, could actually be worth. So go get yours at drinklmt.com slash healthhacked and you know, make an investment in your future today. Now getting into the final story. And yeah, like Aaron said, this relates to COVID. So uh, this is probably one of our more controversial stories. Um, but we've already lost half our listeners anyway, so whatever. <laughs> there has been, it's no no surprise or no secret that in our culture recently, the unvaccinated have been uh, condemned. They have really been viewed as the enemy Look at mainstream media, social media, uh, even the even governmental authorities view the unvaccinated as really the source of all our problems. What a lot of people don't know is that uh, tsunamis are a result of the unvaccinated. Uh, all natural disasters, actually, because the unvaccinated, they require more resources when they go to the hospital. And that require that is a strain on uh, you, th- the climate, which results in natural disasters. So for hurricanes that are wiping out small countries, that's the fault of the unvaccinated. That is the message that you hear from uh, the the media. And I want to push back a little bit on that and just talk about why why I think we need to have a more open discussion around this. One of the more common claims or one of the most common fears that I hear from people that don't want to get vaccinated is we don't know the long-term consequences of the vaccine. We don't know if there's long-term side effects. And the, the pushback on that is from the CDC and everyone else is, well, if there were long-term side effects from this vaccine, we would see that in the short term. And short term, nothing, uh, nothing is showing up, which you could debate that because uh, there, there have been some short-term side effects for some people. 
But the the claim is we would see some some drastic short term side effects if there were long term ne- long term negative impacts. So I want to push back on that because that is not f- f- always the case. Uh, there are situations where it looks okay in the short term, but in the long term can cause some issues. So I want to go through a little history lesson. This is a really interesting story about uh, an old vaccine that Pfizer had made. So back in 2004, Pfizer Animal Health, their like animal division, created a vaccine called Pregsure. And this was uh, to treat uh, bovine viral diarrhea virus, mostly like in, in cows. Okay, so this was marketed and distributed in 2004. And then in 2007, a bunch of cattle farmers, uh, specifically in Europe, started reporting high rates of bovine neonatal pancitopenia. I think that's how you say that, BNP. Um, It's also called bleeding calf syndrome. Highly fatal condition impacting calves results in low blood count, um, like spontaneous bleeding. Like if you go look at a picture of this, it's pretty nasty. Basically, the calf bleeds out of all of its orifices and then bleeds to death. It dies. So this was going on for a few years. And a lot of farmers were reporting like huge, like I think there was like several farmers that report like 15% of their calves were dying from this. And then in April of 2000, um, in April, 2010, scientists basically started making the connection between the vaccinated bovine and bleeding calf syndrome in their offspring. So, so cows that got the, that vaccine, Pregsure, their offspring were having this bleeding calf syndrome. And that was in 2010. They started to make this association. And then uh, in August of 2010, the Committee for Medicinal Products for Veterinary Use in Europe recommended a product recall and marketing suspension of Pregsure until further evidence could be reviewed. Basically, they looked at the evidence up to that point and they said, okay, there is enough evidence here to recall this. And then um, basically, Pfizer received a, a ton of pressure from farmers and the, the animal, animal community. And at the end of 2010, they stopped selling the vaccine in Europe, and then they stopped selling it uh, in New Zealand in 2011. And then a couple years later, there was actually a case-controlled study showing strong evidence that receiving colostrum from a pregsure vaccinated cow is a major risk factor for bleeding calf syndrome. If calves are only given col- colostrum or you know, milk from unvaccinated cows, then it's highly unlikely that calf will develop BNP or bleeding, um, yeah, bleeding calf syndrome. So my whole point in, in telling this story is that like it, this took six years to, from the time that this vaccine went on the market, obviously marketed as safe and effective. Uh, it took six years before we realized that this was causing some major issues, not in the cows themselves who were receiving it, but in their offspring. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who has received the vaccine, their offspring is going to die from some brutal, nasty blood disease. All I'm saying is that there are situations in history where long-term side effects are not seen in the short term. So I, I think that those that are hesitant to get the vaccine for that reason, they deserve to be heard. All right, it's it's easy to kind of just pick this side in this uh, crazy debate that we have for the past two years because it's very polarizing. Basically, whatever side you pick uh, or whatever side you're part of, you have a huge community behind you in that. So it's like taking a nuanced approach is um, not very 
popular. And the popular approach right now is condemn the unvaccinated. And I just think we need to hit pause on that. And, and, uh, yeah, like I think I think give them a chance to, to be heard. I think their their fears and concerns are are valid based on what we've seen in history. And just for perspective, we both are actually vaccinated. So um, this is trying to people I mean, from people who who have gotten the vaccine try to have an open mind for the people who haven't gotten it and look at the reasons why. And and maybe there are some valid reasons as to why they are, are hesitant. And looking at the history of Pfizer. I, I understand why people are, would question it and would be have concern for getting this when it's not been on the market for very long. So um, just mm-hmm. to give a little bit perspective of, of our side of it and why, why we're saying what we're saying. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think allowing people to express their fears and concerns and, and engaging in that dialogue in a non-discriminatory mm-hmm. manner, in a non-instigative manner allows for both sides to learn more and that's how we make advances in science so by shutting down the discussion from either side from either i mean look obviously vaccines and medications have saved millions of lives but there are there are people who react very poorly so i think allowing that discussion to happen on both sides of the equation will allow allow science to advance in the end on a lighter note, we'll uh, we'll uh, move to our last segment here, which is our, our weekly pl- plug, or we mentioned something to check out this week, something we found interesting. Um, I guess I'll kick it off. Uh, mine's just based off one of the uh, earlier stories we mentioned. If you don't want to go through the research of looking up different supplement companies, it's boring. I understand. Nobody has time to to, to do research on that. So. If you just want to know, okay, give me some, give me the top three companies out there. Where are some companies that I know are reputable? Here they are. Um, Thorn Supplements is a good one. Um, Claire Labs and uh, Metagenics and a fourth one, Pure Encapsulations. Those are, are four very reputable companies. Um, though, you know, pharmacy grade is, is what they call them or, or doctor's grade. Um, a lot of doctors will recommend these supplements. They're very clean, very effective. You can get them on, uh, they're harder to find in stores, like in, in a general store, like a, a normal grocery store, but you can find them in pharmacies and you can find them on their own websites. And Amazon has a lot of their products as well. Yeah, that's a good brand. I use, use them a lot for uh, my daily vitamins. All right. Uh, kind of the flip side of that. Sometimes, you know, you just got to get a little naughty. Uh, sometimes we all need a little treat at night. And for me and my wife, that has been these Simple Mills almond flour cookies. And so they are gluten-free, grain-free, dairy, soy-free. Are they grain-free? Yeah, almonds considered grain-free, right? Yeah, yeah, I think they're grain-free. Dairy-free, soy-free. Sounds gross, but like they're actually like really good. Uh, they're made with this nut and seed flour blend coconut sugar, um, coconut oil. So they don't have any nasty oils in it. And, uh, we get them at sprouts. Now they're like five bucks for like a little box that we, we go through pretty quickly. But if you need just a little something, but you don't want to, you know, buy garbage like chips, ahoy, this, this actually hits the spot. Not a lot of, I feel like not a lot of, uh, healthy baked goods really hit the spot, but these do. So simple mills, crunchy almond flour cookies. Uh, I prefer the chocolate chip. I think they have like, uh, uh, an almond flour, uh, to- toasted pecan, but I'm a big fan of the chocolate chip. So 
that's my plug for the week. That's something I've been, that's the kick I've been on. I'll have to try that out. I know Siete, the brand we mentioned, I believe last week, um, similar Simple Mills and they make clean products. They have, they have like three different cookies that are really yeah, good as we well. Tried those. those are kind of new and like they're, they're yeah. good. They're expensive, but they're good. Yeah, they're also expensive, but yeah, another uh, Super Bowl goodie to add to your list. Um, that's all we have for this week. Thank you guys for listening and we'll be back again with another episode next week. 